0: I got good news. You want good news? Yeah. Or do you want bad news? Good. You want good news? Bill Fraker went home this week. Many of you know that. That's good news. Bill Fraker is home. Now, he's been in the hospital four times in a month. So we need to pray that he stays home after uh, all his trouble with gallbladder and gallstones. My goodness. Another good praise. Marianne Fisher is home right now, folks. That is a very big praise. Marianne, of course, uh, just a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, difficulty and pain that she had—an obstruction. Um, she's home, but you know, on, on this, on the same, uh, on the other hand, we have decisions to make as a family. We're glad she's home, but uh, we've got cancer back, and uh, we need to be praying for Marianne and her family as they decide what is the next step to take. Um, potentially chemotherapy again. Um, there may be other options, so prayers for Mary Ann, but she's home. And another one that you've been praying for, uh, Candy Adermatt, who's not a member of this church. She's a, a friend of, of the church, a very good friend of Bonnie Livingston. Candy Adermatt, when she went into the hospital uh, a, a little over a week ago, the doctor looked her and said, you are you are very close to dying. She's dealt with a number of cancers. She had horrible sores down her esophagus and mouth, a horrible infection that uh, just consumed her body about 10 days ago. And the doctors, when she first came in, said, we don't think you're going to make it. Our church prayed. Many others prayed. Candy Adermatt went home this past week, folks. Is that a praise or what? She writes to, to Bonnie, she writes, I know you'll be as shocked as I am when I tell you that I'm going home today. Uh, my hemoglobins are, are back at an acceptable level. The, the, blood tra- uh, the transfusion was successful. The infection is gone. I'll be on antibiotics for a couple weeks, but I don't mind that. She says, uh, my, my sores are still an issue, the mouth sores, but the pain is marginally better. And she said, this is what happens when God's people show up. Good things, folks. I got I got two more praises. I got I got I, I'm overflowing with praises here. You may not have known this, but uh, over the last couple of weeks, we had meant to announce it earlier. It was in your bulletin, but uh, the son of David and Colleen Bacon, not James. James, you're a little too young. The other son, Michael. Michael Bacon is engaged to be married. Everyone, so congratulations to Michael and the family. Uh, well, a wonderful uh, young lady named Jasmine who uh, has been uh, serving alongside Michael at Camp Allendale for the past three years. And Michael is graduating Princeton University this year. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. I think his parents are too. Michael has plans to go on to seminary and to become a chaplain in the military. Isn't that wonderful, folks? So that is uh, a really neat thing. Chaplain uh, for, for the Army, correct, Dave? Yes, chaplain for the Army got one more praise god is good says one mom of the church on thursday my son had a baked food challenge at the allergist it was a cupcake with milk and eggs he was able to eat an entire cupcake with no allergic reaction it's been forty eight hours no hives no eczema no tummy issues so now we can slowly introduce products at home that have baked milk and eggs in them DJ Rose Pink is so excited, and we are too. Mommy will be praying every time we try a new food. Dustin and Lissa Rosepink, their son DJ, uh, horrific allergic reactions to certain kinds of food as a baby, as a toddler, and as a young boy. Just stop your heart reactions to, to different uh, uh, allergies that he's had. Milk and eggs are no longer one of them. Praise God. Big, big round of applause for Lissa and Dustin. So folks, um, I'm, I'm happy this morning. I really am. I, uh, it, was a, it was a tough start to this year. Because you, most of you remember, the start of this year was not a happy new year for Coast Bible Church. It was a, it was a tragic new year. There was tragedy everywhere. Everywhere. Ray went in the hospital. Bill went in the hospital. Marianne went in the hospital. Candy Adermatt went in the hospital. Fred Koblenz, our, our dear uh, former uh, chairman of our board who moved out uh, to Nevada, he's still in the hospital today. Um, tragedy struck everywhere in and around our church all at once. All at once. The title of this message is that tragedy can strike at any moment. Tragedy can strike at any moment. Moment. And in fact, that's precisely, precisely, ironically, the topic of the discussion in Luke chapter 13, which is precisely where we are today. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, as Jesus sounds a warning about tragedy. Some would call it ironic that we're here. I uh, I would call it now providential that the Lord would have us in this place in the Gospel of Luke today. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 13. There were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus also spoke this parable to them. Verse 6, A certain man had a fig tree and, uh, planted in, in, the vine- in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, look, for three years... I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But the keeper of the vineyard answered and said to him, Sir, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, until I fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. You may be seated. Tragedy. Tragedy is actually how this portion of the Gospel of Luke begins in chapter 13. Two events. Two events that rocked Jerusalem. And I mean rocked Jerusalem. You think about events that have really rocked um, our nation, the United States of America. You know, we, uh, more recently, we can think of uh, the the tragedy in, uh, in Ferguson, Missouri. The tragic situation where uh, following the, the shooting between the cop and, and uh, this uh, African-American man there was incredible riots, incredible revolt, incredible um, demonstrations and protests and everyone, the whole nation was looking at Ferguson, Missouri and, and, and thinking about what happened there and trying to make sense of it all. It consumed the nation. It consumed the, uh, the, re- the reporters and the journalists and the news agencies and the television channels. Everywhere you looked, there was talk of Ferguson, Missouri. I submit to you that the two events listed in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 13 of Luke were events that consumed Jerusalem. They were the talk of the town. They were the talk of the whole region, of the whole country. Two events that rocked Jerusalem. One, a tragic injustice in verse two. Another, a tragic accident in verse four. Tragedy can strike at any moment. The first one, a tragic injustice. Verse one, there were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, presumably their temple sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Tragic injustice. So we have Galileans from the northern regions of Israel. Jesus was from Galilee. Galileans from the northern regions of Israel, had apparently traveled south to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. This would have likely been uh, something that would have been done during one of the major feasts of Israel. They wouldn't have come down for just any reason. They would have probably come down for a time like Passover, a time in which the whole nation would descend upon, upon Jerusalem to come and offer sacrifice before God. So the, these, this group of Galileans... Presumably, uh, men, perhaps with some of their families, have come down from the northern regions. They've traveled very far. They've come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice, perhaps during one of the major feasts. And while there, while there, they had a run-in. A run-in with Roman soldiers who served under the the direction of Pontius Pilate. Whether the Galileans uh, provoked the incident or whether the Roman soldiers used unjustifiable aggression, we are not told. But we are told the outcome of the event. It says that a number of Galileans, we don't know how many, were killed at or right near the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews who recounted this story to Jesus, they said that Pilate had mingled or had mixed the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifice at the temple. Now, whether that's um, potentially an idiom that simply is a, is a way of saying that they died tragically, or perhaps that, that is actually a, a literal depiction of what Pilate and the soldiers under his direction physically did, that they physically mingled the, the blood of the Galilean men with their sacrificial lambs that they had brought. We're not sure. Could be an idiom. Could be a literal depiction. We know that uh, the the great uh, historian Josephus uh, indicates a a number of uh, instances in which Pilate did unspeakable things to the Jews and to others. But this particular event is actually not recounted in his antiquities. Nevertheless, whether it's an idiom or or an actual depiction of what happened, we know that Pilate ordered that his soldiers do something awful to these Galileans. A heinous act. A tragic injustice. A tragic and untimely death of these Galileans at the hands of their Roman oppressors. But... tragic as it was in the minds of first century Israelites. And we think of uh, you know, the time in Ferguson where the whole nation was consumed and we all, we all were formulating opinions and we were all taking sides and we were all trying to make sense of it. We were all landing on one side or the other and making judgments. It consumed the nation, tragic as it was and consuming as it was in the minds of the first century Israelites who undoubtedly spoke of the story day in and day out, something else was on the mind of the average Israelite. The average Jew certainly mourned their fallen countrymen, and they certainly ramped up their disdain for their cruel Roman overlords, but something else was lingering in the back of their minds. They wondered Did these Galileans die because of their sin? Did these Galileans, did these Northerners, did the tragic injustice and death, untimely death that befell them, did they die because they had some horrible sin that they had committed? You see, a first century Jew was convinced that tragic death, even that which is seemingly unjust, can also perhaps be indicative, and in fact is most likely indicative of the just judgment of God. They held to a theology of retribution, an ideology in their minds that physical calamity or disease or sickness or affliction of any kind is necessarily an indication that a person or his family had committed some grave, grave sin. So while on the one hand, the Jews despised Pilate, they hated him for ordering the death of these Galileans, on the other hand, they wondered, they wondered, did these Galileans deserve it? Had they done something awful? Had they committed a sin that invoked the wrath of God upon them? Was this divine payback? As the Jews recounted this story to Jesus at the beginning of Luke 13, take note of how Jesus responds. Verse 2, Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those of you that know me uh, know that I have a tendency to be um, thrifty, uh, frugal. Um, Some of you would call it cheap. I call it economical and uh, inefficient, my middle name. Um, my wife knows this all too well. And while I try to hide, I really try to hide my love of frugality and, 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 uh, and thriftiness, I try to hide it from her at all times uh, and keep a tight lip on it at home. But after 14 years of marriage, my wife knows exactly what I'm thinking all of the time, all of the time. Just the other day, just the other day I was in the kitchen with my wife and uh and I was I was uh, our our kitchen, we've you've you've got the kitchen area, the sink and then you've got a bar and there's bar stools there. And I'm sitting on the bar stools and and Casey's in front of me, and we're talking and and she's washing dishes and I'm I'm we're having a conversation as she's washing these dishes and uh and if you've ever witnessed my wife wash dishes, well it it is a sight to behold. Because you see, folks, soap and water are flying all over the kitchen. It's amazing. I mean, there's soap suds and and water everywhere, and just, it's like, pour it in and, and you know, throw it all over the place, and it's just, it's a circus in my sink. And, uh, and so at one point, after watching her uh, pour another, you know, 16 ounces of soap into one of the pots, I, I slowly, you know, painstakingly but sensitively, just, just very politely, I just slightly averted my head a little bit, just kind of, you know, just kind of looking away a little bit, because I didn't want to micromanage what was happening, of course. Ever so slightly, do I, do I turn my head away, just, just so I don't have to look at how much soap was being poured into the, the, the pot? It was the slightest turn. Barely perceptible to anyone. And my wife perceived exactly what was going on in my head and she looked up and says, you think I'm putting too much soap in it, don't you? And I go, huh? What? Me? What? No. Uh, no. She says, you think I'm putting too much soap in this pot, don't you? And I'm like, what? No. Hey, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you always know What is going on in my head? I barely turned away, just the slightest, like, I'm not going to say anything. And Casey, boom, she knew exactly what was happening in me. She nailed it. She perceived my thought as much as I tried to hide it. She gets it every time. She understands me. She perceives my thoughts. Jesus gets it every time. He knows you and I better than anyone. And when the Jews of Luke 13 tell him a story about the tragic death of the Galileans, he immediately, he immediately picks up on the secret thoughts and intents of their heart. He immediately picks up on what is lingering in the back of their minds as they bring up this story. Jesus perceives that the real reason, the real reason they're telling him this, is because they secretly wonder if the tragic and untimely death of these Galileans was an indication that they were under the wrath of God. And he responds to them in verse 2. And they start thinking, huh, what? How, how How did you know that? He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such a tragic and untimely death? I tell you no. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. The Galileans who perished, who died at the hands of Roman soldiers under Pontius Pilate, the Galileans who perished, oh, they were sinners, all right. They were sinners. Make no mistake about it. But they did not die, Jesus alludes. They did not die because they were more heinous sinners than you or I or anyone else. In fact... Jesus says, unless you repent of your sin, you too will suffer the same fate as they. To use Jesus' exact words, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now our minds, (laughs) our minds, at least my mind, our minds immediately jump to the last word in that sentence. We go all the way to the end. Perish. Wow. A word... It should rightly scare anyone. Apolumi in Greek. A scary word. But first, I want to turn your attention to the word that precedes it. A word that nobody looks at when they read this story. It's the word likewise. Likewise. Jesus is telling the crowd, if you don't repent of your sins, you will Likewise, Hamoios in Greek, suffer the same fate of the Galileans who were murdered. If you don't repent of your sin, you will likewise perish. You will likewise suffer the same fate of the Galileans who were murdered. What exactly is Jesus saying there? Is he suggesting that if the Jews don't repent of their sin that they will be murdered by Roman soldiers? Is that what he's suggesting? Some would actually even take it that way. They would look forward 40 years and they would look at the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which... A matter of historical fact, 40 years from now, uh, the Jews and the Romans, they went to war against one another and uh, the, Rome, the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They entered in AD, from A.D. 66 to 70 and harassed the Jews and committed great atrocities and violence and by the, end, by the end of the war, A.D. 70, Jerusalem was ransacked. Many, many Jews lost their lives. It could be that Jesus is alluding to to uh, the fact that they will literally suffer, they will likewise perish in the same exact way as the Galileans did, that's probably not what he's driving at. It's more likely the case that Jesus is not speaking about how they died, but rather about the manner in which they died. It was tragic. It was untimely. It was premature. It was before their time. And likewise, likewise, unless you repent of your sin, you too, like Galileans, like the Galileans, you too will suffer a tragic and untimely death. English readers of Scripture, we jump to the last word, perish. Apollumi, and suppose that Jesus is exclusively, exclusively referring to eternal death, the condemnation of hell. But those same readers missed the word likewise before it. Nothing was said, nothing was said of the eternal fate of the Galileans, now was it? Did Jesus suggest they went to hell? No. Perhaps some did. Perhaps some were believers in Messiah. The story of their death did not cover the topic of eternity, now did it? But those same readers who jump to the end and say, ah, that's about eternal death, those same readers missed the word likewise, just ahead of it. The story did not cover the topic of eternity, It covered the topic of their tragic and untimely physical death. It's as if, it's as if Jesus is saying, those Galileans, yes, they were sinners. But they were no worse sinners than anyone else. They suffered a tragic and untimely death. And you may suppose, you may suppose that the point of their death was that they had committed some heinous sin. You might suppose that, but quite the contrary is true. The point of their death for you and for me the point of their death for you and for me is that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of us all of us are on the edge of life and death every single man woman and child are this close to death don't think for a moment that you're immune from death it could happen at any moment Under any circumstances, whether by murder, or by disease, or by sickness, or by a freak accident like the 18 people who had a tower fall on them, verse 4. Jesus brings up that story. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, freak accident. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise, likewise, perish. The point of their death for you, Jesus says, is so that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of us are right on the edge. Death could come at any moment. And so because of that, because perishing could happen at any moment, get right now with God. Turn to Him in faith. Repent of your sin, or else you too will likewise suffer a tragic and untimely death, it'll come at a time you weren't expecting it and if you're not ready, you'll find yourself immediately thrust before the judge of all mankind where your physical perishing may very well end in eternal perishing if you've not made peace with God by grace through faith in Christ. All of us stand at the risk of death every moment of every day. So why do we wait to get right with God? Let me suggest to you that if we were to take chapter 13 and if Jesus was to come right now and he were to uh, reteach what we're teaching today, he would walk in front of us and he would look at all of us and he would say, do you suppose... That the tragic hospitalizations of your loved ones, do you suppose that the tragic circumstances that they've gone through near death, having organs fail on them, cancer befalling them, the word terminal being used of our dear beloved friend Fred Koblenz, do you suppose? that all of these things are happening to those people because they're worse sinners than you? No. No, Jesus says. But if our dear beloved brother, Fred Koblenz in Nevada, whom the doctors have told is terminal, doctors have told is terminal, our Lord will get to decide that. If our dear friend passes in the coming weeks and months, What will be the point of his death for us? What will be the point of his death? How will we respond to it? How will we react to it? We probably won't suppose, like the first century Jews often did, we probably won't suppose that there was divine retribution involved. Many of us know Fred. We know what a godly man he is. That won't be the point. But I wonder if Jesus' words still hold water if Fred were to die. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I wonder if that's the point when someone tragically dies. I wonder if the point is, is that we need to see the death, potential death of our loved ones or hospitalizations of our loved ones, tragic circumstances of our loved ones. I wonder if the point is we're to look at those things and go, wow, life is so fragile. Life is so fragile. It can get snuffed out like that. It can go in a moment. It can go in disease and illness. It can go in a freak accident. Crazy things can happen. And I wonder if the point is, as we watch our brothers and sisters suffer, and perhaps die, I wonder if the point is that we are to look upon their suffering and death and then to look inside and say, am I ready to face the judge? Jesus is suggesting that is precisely the point. That every suffering, every tragic disease and illness, every tragic death, Jesus is suggesting to you and to me today that when we witness those things, one of the first things we're to consider is the fragility of life and where we are with God. For the unbeliever, for the non-Christian, It's very simple. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. If you want to make peace with God, if you want to be right before the judge, unbeliever, that's what you need to do right now. As you witness suffering and tragedy and potential death before you, Consider the fragility of life and ask yourself what must be done. We declare to you, non Christian, that what you must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. For the Christian, you don't get off the hook. You still look upon the suffering and tragedy and potential deaths around you and you say, wow, I'm reminded again, life is fragile. Am I right with God right now? I've, I've expressed... My trust in Him, i believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, but am I right with Him? Am I in right relationship with Him? Do I have any unconfessed sin? Do I have any sin that I've not repented of? Do I need to get right with God in my relationship with Him before I meet Him? You will have your day in court, we've learned in Luke 12. You will stand before the judge. He will evaluate our lives. The wise person is the person who settles their account with God in this life to make peace with God now and not wait until the last day. And here's the best part. Here's the best part. God is waiting. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you and for me to do the the very thing that we're talking about. In fact, He is waiting with tremendous patience. The fact that you breathe and I breathe right now is an indication that God is long-suffering toward you and me. The fact that you are alive right now is an indication that He's still waiting on you. He's still waiting for you. And He's giving you opportunity and time to consider how you can continue to grow in Him and mature in Him and get right with Him and grow in holiness and sanctification. He is waiting Read this parable about how much he's waiting. Verse 6, he spoke this parable to them. A certain man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none, no fruit. So he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But the keeper of the vineyard said, sir, let it alone this year also. Let it alone until I dig around it, until I fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, okay. After that, you can cut it down. The imagery is rich with Old Testament allusions. Israel was often likened to a vineyard Or a tree, even a fig tree, in God's vineyard. A nation that was nourished and cared for by God day in and day out. And yet, when that same tree, Israel, failed to produce fruit year after year, the owner of the vineyard was beginning to have a mind to cut down the tree. He was beginning to think that this fig tree should suffer a tragic and untimely death. And he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? God expects fruit. He expects it. He expects good works. We know that salvation is not by works. We just recited Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation, eternal salvation, is not by works, lest any man should boast. But make no mistake, God expects works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for, to do good works. God expects fruit from us. In a garden, in a garden, men and women, they, they spend time nourishing and caring for plants and trees, providing them the right nutrients to grow. Yet after all of that cultivation, after months and months and years and years of cultivation, if the plant or the tree fails to grow or produce fruit, there comes a day when the earthly gardener trims it back. Or worse, there comes a time when the gardener uproots it. Cuts it down. Why should we expect anything less of the Lord? Why should we expect anything less of the Lord in His garden, which is earth, where He offers daily nourishment, daily nourishment to His plants and trees, which are you and I? Why should we be surprised when the Lord has an expectation that His creation will grow and produce fruit in response to His loving care and nurture. It's a reasonable expectation. It is not fair for us to cry foul when the Lord trims back an unproductive tree. It is not right for us to protest when He uproots or when He cuts down a fruitless tree. We will reap what we sow. I think we know that this is now a reasonable expectation of God. But knowledge is one thing. Getting right with him is another. What do you need to do today to get right with God? That's the question. It's a very simple one. What do you need to do? Unbeliever, you need to know what it means to receive eternal salvation by faith in Christ. Got to start there. That's where you start. There's a lot more after that. But that's where you start. To the Christian... Every day is a gift. God has given you more time. He's showing patience with you today. Jesus is the advocate before the Father, saying, give him more time. Give that one more time. Let me dig around him. Let me fertilize it a little bit more. Let me nourish this woman just a little bit more. Let it alone. One more year until I dig around it, until I fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, if that man or that woman bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, okay. Cut it down. One more year. God is long-suffering. He is quick to help and offer aid. He's quick to forgive and desires to put the past behind Him. And yet He still has... uh, He still has shears within reach. He still has an axe within reach. And if we fail to respond to his repeated gestures of grace and of mercy and of patience, if we fail to respond to that, there comes a time when he'll reluctantly pick up the shears and trim. When he'll reluctantly pick up the axe and swing it. There comes a time when God cuts men and women down. Tragic and untimely deaths, even cuts those down who are sluggish to repent and change course in life. Does that mean you're going to hell? No, that's not the point of the story. Even of the story of the Galileans or of the tower that fell on those in Siloam. The point of the story is not about their eternal, whether they went to heaven or hell. The point of the story that death comes at any moment are you ready are you ready I want to be ready when death comes I want to stand before the judge on the last day and have a clean conscience before him knowing that I made peace with him not only by faith in Christ but by the confession of my sin by the daily confession of it. Getting right with him, hour by hour. And where I've gone astray, where I've gone into deeper and darker places of sin, I want to repent before my death. I want to repent of that sin so that I can stand before him and say, I, I wasn't always perfect, Lord, but I, I did all I could to finish well. I want to finish well. You may not have started well. Many of us don't start well. Sometimes we get tripped up in the middle. Sometimes we get tripped up toward the end. Regardless, it's ironic in scripture how often Jesus talks about how you finish. How you finish. Today is the day to finish well. I don't care about the past. I care about you right now. God doesn't care about the past. He's given you another year. Dig around it. Fertilize it. I bet there's more fruit here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Oh, God, we sometimes, we know, we know our sin, Lord. We, we know the attitudes of our heart. We know the lies. We know some of the things that we're not proud of. Some of those things, God, are are happening even now. We're doing them now. Lord, thank you for your patience toward us. You are are giving us more time. You haven't cut us down yet. You may have trimmed a bit, and we're grateful for that. But Lord, now we want to get right with you. While there still is time, before a freak and tragic accident befalls us and we lose our life, we recognize, Lord, that what we do in this physical life matters to you. It matters who we believe in, who we put our faith in. We've put our faith in you, Jesus. And it matters, God, how we conduct our lives. We want to get before you on the last day, God, and not be ashamed when Jesus comes rather we want to stand before Christ's judgment seat and receive uh, the words well done good and faithful servant you finished well that's what we're aiming for Lord so God would you let us recognize today the fragility of life would you let us recognize today the patience that you've shown us and now now it's our turn Father to respond to the prompting of your spirit in your word to respond now and get right with you. To repent. To confess our sin. To get clean again. Help us to do that, Father. There is more fruit in us. You have more work to do in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.